All right, so the book of Hosea. Hey, Meg. Book of Hosea is immediately following the book of Daniel. On my Bible, it's in page. Uh, it's on page nine seventy-seven. So I don't know what that means for your Bible. Yeah. Hosea. Who's the author of Hosea? <laughs> when I ask the really easy questions, everybody just looks at me like <laughs> Hosea. That's what they think, and that's pretty good. Uh, pretty good. Pretty good idea. Um, the audience is the northern kingdom, most of all, in Israel. By this time, the kingdom had split. So there was the southern kingdom, which was Judah, and then there was the northern kingdom, which we refer to generally as Israel. By this time, they split. Anybody remember why they split? War and kings? Yep. Kings after, uh, yep, after Solomon died, right? His sons, Rehoboam, took over and blew it almost immediately and divided the kingdom. And so, yeah, so ever since then, they have uh, the northern kingdom, otherwise known as Israel. Hey, guys. And the southern kingdom, otherwise known as Judah. So it's hard to pin an exact date, probably somewhere around the 700s, but we do have a clue in our first verse, which says the, the word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so when, when stuff like that happens, we're able to tell historically when things happen. And so those were, were, were all around the reign of where we are. So we can't, he couldn't have written anything, obviously, with those kings that didn't exist. So it was in the time of those kings. The main purpose, as we'll see, is warning and judgment. Warning about... Uh, the judgment that's coming and the judgment that will actually come. And it is, uh, it's prophecy. Hosea is a prophet. But as we'll see in a moment, it is what we might call speech act prophecy. And we've talked about that once or twice. When we got to Jeremiah, Jeremiah had some sections of speech act. Anybody remember what speech act prophecy means? Kind of like acting it out. Yeah, you can kind of put the words together, right? God says, do this, and he actually does it. I think Jeremiah was the one who was on his side for, you know, like a couple of years or something, and then he flipped over and went to the other side, and, you know, literally laying on his slide. Ate dung, maybe? Ate dung, yeah, made a fire, yep, yep, all that stuff. So that's when not only thus saith the Lord, sometimes in the prophecies, they actually act it out, and they act it out in order to, you know, I guess doubly prove a point in that way as well. So so we're going to read what's happening in Hosea is that the first three chapters are really the speech act that's happening. And then the next really um, 11 chapters after that or so um, is a cycle of judgment, of hope of reconciliation of all that. So we're going to spend a lot of time in, in sections one uh, or chapters one to three, and then we'll kind of give an overview of the rest of the chapters. I do have an unfortunate announcement. No video. There's no video. Oh, no. <laughs> there, there is a video. But some things have come out of, of late with uh, Tim Mackey, who is uh, the one who does all those videos, and I haven't sorted them out yet. And I don't know if I can sort them out because I'm reading about these things and listening to his comments from a distance. And so, yeah, so he's, he's, uh, he's made some um, wacky theological comments that kind of put him taking a left turn suddenly on some issues like homosexuality and some other things. And so I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm not going to call him a heretic or anything, but I just don't feel comfortable showing his videos right now until we kind of figure that out. So, mm -hmm. so he's been grounded. What's that? He's been grounded. <laughs> he's, been, he's in timeout. Yeah, time out. he's in timeout. He's in theological timeout. But yeah. So did we find them on the internet? So, so sure. <laughs> Sometimes they help us. Absolutely. Yeah, make your own decision on that. We always want to be discerning. 
right? So yes, you can watch it. Just engage your biblical filter. And it might even be better. Maybe we'll talk about these things tonight and you'll have a more informed position than to go and watch the video and be like, hey, that's not weird. I did watch the video in Hosea. I didn't think he said anything weird, but I didn't want you guys to get on Twitter or anything like that or hear about it and be like, hey, why are we watching those guys' videos? Let's make our own videos. Let's make our own videos. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. Um, all right, so let's look at um, Hosea. I'm just going to warn you all, if you've never read Hosea before, it gets shocking pretty quickly. So set your faces to stun, just in case. Uh, so we already read verse 1, but verse 2 of Hosea chapter 1 says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. <coughs> See what I mean? So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword, or by war, or by horses or horsemen. And when she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to call his name Not My People. If you're looking for baby names, I don't suggest looking in Hosea, okay? <laughs> Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. I think he's a little upset. Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. All right, so see what I mean about the speech act? See what I mean about the shocking kind of language right from the start? So the Lord tells Hosea to go find a wife of whoredom and have children with her. Any thoughts on why in the world God would be asking Hosea to do this? Remember, it's prophecy, it's speech, he's acting something out. Right? So if, go more. If you watched my This Week at Highlands video, you got a hint. Oh, I didn't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's acting out how God feels when Israel betrays him by uh, worshiping other gods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We saw it a couple times in Jeremiah, right? God uh, refers to idolatry as spiritual adultery. Right. And he says, so here's an object lesson. We're going to do real adultery. And if you were paying attention, you mentioned that during the adultery um, yeah. uh, as well, sermon on adultery on the commandment, do not commit adultery. Yes, you know? yeah. yeah. So he takes it very, very seriously, right? And so he has Hosea go and do this. And they bear children. These names uh, that are coming around, right? Call him Jezreel. Jezreel literally means God sows or God plants. Jezreel is a valley of judgment. And so all of those themes are in the background, right? And he says some really strong things in there. Like he said, no mercy. Call your second kid no mercy because yeah. I will have no mercy on you. And he says, I'm not going to have any mercy. But he, he doesn't say that about both kingdoms. He only says that about Israel. Mm -hmm. He says, of Israel I have no mercy, but of Judah I will have mercy. Now, spoiler alert, why would he have mercy on Judah? What's so important about Judah? The line of David. Yeah, because somebody really important has to come through the line of Judah which is Jesus, our Savior. And so, yeah, so the ten tribes of northern Israel, they cease to exist. But Judah must continue because the Messiah will. So he says, I will have mercy on Judah, but I will not have mercy on Israel. 
And the third kid, call his name not my people. I mean, this might be some of the strongest language in all of Scripture. Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Like, can you imagine that? Like, that's literally, he's literally divorcing them. It's, it's really the end of Israel, and only Judah will remain. Right? Uh, so let's look at chapter 2. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Now, hold on. What the heck just happened? <laughs> what, what's, what were you reading? Chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. He could. What do we see about those? What, what does he? What do we see about those? Uh, those names. He says, "You are my people, and you have received mercy." What did he just do? He just totally reversed the names, right? Yeah. He totally flipped them. He says, "I know. I said I would have uh, no mercy, right, on Israel, but I will have mercy. So, so I will have mercy on Judah, right? I will call you my people, Judah." And so he's reinforcing, again, that he is the one who's going to literally change their identity. He's, they, you know, Judah will sin as well. But once again, they will be redeemed. It's so cool to see that now he's, he's just demonstrating to Judah of his, his faithfulness there. Right? And it gets real emotional, he says in verse 2. Plead, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. And, and so, my translation says rebuke. Rebuke? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're an HCSB? Yeah. Yeah. You're such a good Baptist. She's an IV. It says rebuke also. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so who's her mother? Plead with your mother. Plead for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Right. Again, he's talking about Israel. Right. The one, the one who will be rebuked. Wow. That she put away whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Those watching at home, sorry to tell you this was PG-13. Blessed I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children I also will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. And therefore, I will hedge her up. I will hedge her way up with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were used to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. Then I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her appointed feasts. Then I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. This is a major section of judgment against Israel, right? This emotional language. Plead with her. There's a sense, too, where we see in verses 6 and 7 that God kind of even tries to stop it, right? I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall. She'll pursue her lovers, but she won't get to them, right? There were was, was some times where God tried to stop Israel and her idolatry, but they would not be stopped, right? And then we see in, in verse 14... There's a turn towards mercy. Therefore, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. 
And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by my name, and they shall be remembered by my name no more. And I will make them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have no mercy. And I will say to not my people, or I'll have mercy on no mercy, sorry. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So we have, again, kind of a, um, a template for the rest of the book. This warning of judgment this depth of how bad it's going to be and why, but then quickly God shows his redemption and God shows his forgiveness in all of this. God will be merciful to Judah. And you see the sweetness of the language, right? I will allure her. I will bring her out into the wilderness. I'll speak tenderly to her. And then again, he says, I will then rename you. You will be my people. You will call me your God, right? I will have mercy on you. I will be steadfast in my love. And so we see this uh, mercy. So is that referring to Judah or Israel? Because the title on the section in my Bible says Israel's, Israel's adultery forgiven. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it switches back and forth. So okay. it, is, it is hard to tell. Yeah. Um, ultimately, we know Israel does not receive that right. mercy, but Judah does. Yeah. So... I think it's safe to say it's the intent if she were to repent. Right. Right? Yes. So God is always ready to forgive those yeah. who repent. Yeah. Right? That makes sense. Um, but we know Israel will not. Right. Unfortunately, she's going to suffer uh, that, that fate. Right? The nation will suffer that fate. Yeah. 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 The northern kingdom. But it is. it does get a little confusing as it switches back and forth, right? Yeah. But yeah, you can see that, um, I know we went by it already, but these things that she said were all of um, given to her by her lovers, right? I will go to my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, and my oil, my drink. And God must be up there doing one of these. Like, yeah. you know, your idols didn't give you any of that. Right. I gave you all of that, right? And you're crediting them with providing for you. And I'm the one who provides for you, right? <laughs> Somebody. And then later on at the end, uh, he says in verse 22, you're going to get all those things back, you know. Well, Judah will at some point. Yeah. There was a line in there that mentioned, like, it made it sound like they were taking these blessings from God, acting like, oh, the Baals are giving them to us, and then using them as sacrifices. Sure. So, I mean, for Baal, was he one of the human sacrifice ones, or, or they were just doing, like, the grain offerings and, and, other, and animal offerings? Most of the time, it is a generic reference to any sacrifice, uh, any sacrifice to any idol. Mm-hmm. Uh, any, any, Baal would be really... In the scriptures, it's kind of a catch-all term for anything. You throw anybody you want in there, Molech or anybody else. It's just anybody who's not God, not the true God. Yeah. So, yeah, so we have this setup. We have the depths of what the sin was in the rebellion, and we have the hint of mercy and forgiveness. And then look at chapter 3. Again, just a short little chapter there, five verses. And he said to me again, so we get back to the conversation with Hosea and God. He said to me again, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You must not play the whore or belong to another man. So will also I be for you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. 
Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in to fear the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And so he gets back to Hosea here, and he says, Go love a woman who is loved again by another man who is an adulteress. Commentators are split. Some people say this is another woman entirely that now is, you know, maybe maybe uh, Gomer took off and she's gone and not coming back. And so God says, act this out with another woman. Other guys say, no, this is Gomer again. I tend to be with those guys that say this is Gomer again. And she has been unfaithful. Mm-hmm. And so God's, God says, guess what? Go get her. Go get her back. Even though she's loved by another man, right? Even though she has been unfaithful to you. He says, go and buy her. Go and literally go and buy her back and bring her back. And then he says, you know, you must, you must dwell as mine. We must be faithful to each other. And that was the, the condition of him buying her back, right? Um, and so I think it's a picture of this restored marriage of him and Gomer and the redemption even of, of People, right, because this is signifying Israel. And sometimes when the, they use Israel, right, it's another kind of catch-all term to mean whoever's faithful, right, mm-hmm. from the people, uh, from the Jewish people. So we kind of see that, I think, coming in in verse 5. The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Like David wasn't, David was the king of united Israel, right, in the glory days, Right, and so it's kind of harkening back to those who are Israel, those who are true Israel, right? Not necessarily splitting them up between northern and southern, but those who are faithful. God will be faithful too. It also so, looks like a pattern for like when Jesus went to the cross, yeah, and to redeem us from sin for while we were yet His enemies. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that because we're going to transition into talking about some some application kind of stuff. So we see that picture of he, he literally goes and buys her, mm-hmm. really out of sexual slavery or sexual, uh, she's trapped, yep. right? What a beautiful picture. He goes and buys her. And that's what Ken says is the exact picture of what Christ does for us. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the biblical definition of the word redemption. Mm-hmm. Christ literally pays for us. Paid the debt. He yep. pays the debt. There's something that is, like, he had to go pay 15 shekels. Christ has to go pay for us with his blood mm-hmm. to purchase us out of our slavery. Yeah. And so it absolutely has echoes of the gospel there. And when we talk about being redeemed, right, that's exactly uh, what we talk about. Um, I'm going to jump over to 1 Corinthians 6. 20, just to show it that it is a common theme that we see in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You can see that theme, right? Yeah. Hosea says to Gomer, I'm going to buy you back, but you have to be faithful to me. Right? That's, that's what God says here. Christ bought you with his blood, so be faithful to me. And you can see again how that's the gospel, right? He doesn't say, start being faithful, and then I'll buy you back. Right? Right? He says, I'll buy you back wherever you are. I will pull you out of the muck and the mire, the slavery, and then you will be faithful. Grace. That's huge to get that right. Because a lot of people think, well, I've got to clean myself up so that God will accept me. And that's from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That's not the model we see. Mm -hmm. He comes into our mess buys us back and then he says you're mine now act like it Mm. what a picture of redemption that is beautiful yeah any other kind of theological reflections were kicking through your head as we read those those chapters Ken had a couple there okay he saves her okay okay yep um he definitely did that. What about this whole aspect of, <laughs> how'd you like to get that message from the Lord? 
Yeah. Steve, I got an assignment for you. <laughs> and I know you're engaged. So I'm going to bail out of this illustration right now. <laughs> my, Good move. My, <laughs> Mike, I got an assignment for you. You're going to have to go and do this terrible thing, whatever it is. Yeah. Right? Something, you can think of something that's just like, oh my gosh, I don't want to do that. Like, I mean, you got to know that Hosea was not like, awesome. Yeah. I'll get right on that. Let me go right down to the red light district and pick somebody. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, at least he didn't have to lay naked on the ground for six months. Yes. Too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Being a prophet of the Lord yeah. is, is it's a tough job. Special calling. Yeah. It's a special calling for sure. But that's kind of it, right? The Lord calls his servants to do hard things for his glory and for his message. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the deal. Yeah. I mean, odds are he's not going to call any of us to do this, but he is going to call us to do hard things. Yep. Right? What kind of what kind of things are difficult when he calls us to follow him? Asking for forgiveness. Asking for forgiveness from someone else. Yep. When you've sinned against them. Yep. Being humble enough to admit your own sin and yeah. confess and repent. Yeah. That's hard stuff. But that's what we're called to. Absolutely. What else? That is hard. What else? Granting what a, forgiveness. Granting forgiveness oh. could be even harder. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, we're called to do that, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, even in our own hearts, like sanctification isn't easy. Yeah. Killing sin, growing yeah. and changing more into the image of Jesus Christ—that's hard work. He calls us to that, right? So we're still called to do hard things in holiness and sanctification. What about idolatry? I mean, it's a good thing we don't have idolatry today, right? <laughs> we were just talking about this. <laughs> Do we still have idolatry today? We still have idolatry. It really is. You either worship God or you worship an idol. And whatever you want to put in this not worshiping God bucket is an idol. Yeah, that's why it's harder for a rich man to follow the Lord if he says, we sure. go behind Yep. The poor man, because the poor man has nothing to lose. Yep. Yep. The rich man has everything to lose. Yep. yep. And you could worship money, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. And you see yourself, see people wearing themselves out to chase or dollar. protect, or even in some things like uh, even uh, over hyper focus on frugality and mm -hmm. savings. Like nobody's going to touch this. I just have a pile of money and I'm going to guard it with my life. Yeah, so there could be many things, but I think you could, right? There's, there's only two categories. Either you're worshiping God or you're worshiping an idol. Like Baal, if that represents a group of any of the idols, right, in play, like throw in our modern idol. What are our modern Baals, right? Money, sex, pleasure, status, mm -hmm. career, whatever, comfort, health, all of that, right? It probably could be wrapped up in just one big idol called self. Yep. Either God's God of our life or we're God of our life. And so that's that's still where we are, right? First commandment. Yeah, that we are that we think we're captains of our own destiny, and we think we're um, the kings of our own little sub kingdoms, and not submitting to Him, right? What about the faithfulness of God? Like, He has a plan. This plan of redemption, right? Both. Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom are unfaithful. Judah was unfaithful. Judah still got run over by the Babylonians in 586, but here he's talking about the Northern Kingdom first. His plan of redemption, did that stop? No, it's always true to his word. Yeah. yeah. Never goes back on his word. Yeah. It didn't stop because we're sitting here in Highlands Bible Church, right? And... Where he was faithful to his plan. He gave us Jesus. He's always faithful to the covenant. Jesus did come through Judah. Yeah, the so absolutely. covenant to Abraham. Yeah. So it shows us that we can never out-sin God's faithfulness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. His plan will continue. He will be faithful to himself. He will be faithful to save those who are faithful to him. And we can't out-sin his faithfulness. Doesn't mean that we should sin, though. So that mercy increases. Nope. Romans 6. <laughs> right. Absolutely not. <laughs> but along with that is our identity. Jump over to Romans chapter 9. I should have told you to stretch out your fingers. We're going to do some, some traveling tonight. Romans chapter 9. 
in verse 25. This is Paul talking about Israel Mm -hmm. and how he's lamenting. He quotes Hosea directly. Uh, 25, he says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And those and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place it was said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. Paul drops this text in the middle of Romans. Mm -hmm. To say what? What is this a picture of in the middle of Romans? God's love for the Gentiles. Yeah. God's right for his people in general, right? For his people yeah. in general. But, you know, here he's, he's, yeah, right, both the Gentiles and the Jews yep. that are his. Yeah. Right? And that's anyone, right? Jew or Gentile. Right. Before Christ. Yep. Right? We are all not his people, right? We are all objects of his wrath. We don't have any of his mercy. Yep. But yet through Christ, what does he do? He picks us out of the muck and the mire of slavery, redeems us, and now says, you are my people. Yeah. And now says, I will have mercy on you through my son, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Technically, we're, we're at war with God. Yeah. Until he gives us uh, his peace. Yep. Yep. Through, uh, through Christ's uh, completed work on the cross. Absolutely. And Hosea was a picture of that, right? And Paul picks up on that in the middle of Romans, right? Um, in First Peter chapter 2, I'll just read it really quickly. He says the same thing. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right? And so especially when Paul and Peter are slinging these words and there are Jewish Christians in the room, you know they're thinking Hosea because they remember that. And for the Gentiles, for those who have never heard this before, right, it's still a concept that we understand. We were separated from God. We were not his people. But through faith in Jesus Christ, he's made us his people and he's shown us mercy. Right? Um, What about, um, question, is God jealous? Mm -hmm. He says he's a jealous God. Yeah. Yep, there's pretty graphic language in... 2 verse 2, plead with your mother, plead, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. I want her to stop doing these terrible things. Right? Mm-hmm. That's jealousy. It, it, it continues on. Right? So God is jealous for his people. Um, I had a reference to another passage here, and I don't recognize it. So let me see if that's something that would help us. Yeah, so jump over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and look at verse 2. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2. This is Paul saying, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I'm afraid that the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. (laughs) Indeed, I consider that I'm not the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Paul kind of harkens back to jealousy of the the husband-wife relationship. And in that relationship, right, Christ is the husband and his bride is the church. And in Israel's time, his bride was Israel, right? And so he understands what jealousy feels like. He understands what betrayal feels like because Israel betrayed him and we betrayed him too. And Paul says, hey, like, you know, there's a divine jealousy here because you guys are going after false gospels. You guys are going after bad teaching. What are you doing? So kind of hinting back to that. So the rest of the book of Hosea, as I saw some of you looking, okay, we're on chapter 3 and there's 14 chapters. We're going to be here until midnight. um, Is this cycle of accusation, 
and then judgment, and then mercy. So I'll give you an example. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, excuse me, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing. There's committing adultery. Sounds a lot like the Ten Commandments. They break all bounds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. So there's the accusation. Just read a little bit of it. Here's what's going on. God says, this is what's happening. This is what's going on with my people. There's judgment that's going to happen. Look at verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you've rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. Judgment is coming. If we skip to 5.1, he says, Hear this, O priest. Pay attention. Listen up, O house of Israel. Give ear, for the judgment is for you. So we had the accusation, now we have judgment, and then the next cycle is going to be mercy. So if we jump over to chapter 6, here's mercy. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers and as the spring rains the water that water the earth. Right. So we see a cycle, and that's going to repeat for the rest of the book, right? of accusation, of judgment, of mercy. We see the same thing in chapter 7. The accusations start in verse 1. I would heal Israel. Then the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, right? Evil deeds, they deal falsely. There's the accusation. Verses, or chapters 8 through 10 is the judgment. Set the trumpet to your lips, here it comes, right? 8-7, uh, they sow the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. That's kind of a saying you hear every now and then, even in our culture. Chapter 11, he starts to show mercy. Same thing. Uh, chapter 12 starts accusation, 13, judgment, 14, mercy. Happens time and time again throughout the rest of the book. And so I want to back up and just kind of pick up some things in the last minutes that we have here together. Look at, jump back to chapter 4, famous verse, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. What kind of knowledge is he talking about? Yeah, knowledge of God, right, as he is, right, as he's revealed himself to be, not how they want him to be. Right. I have a note here from another sermon. What you do not know can hurt you, question thing. What you do not know can hurt you? Can hurt you. <laughs> yeah, if you don't know yep. who God really is and what he's really like. Question things. Yep. Yep. The beginning of knowledge of the fear of God. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. So we've got to make sure we know God and know God as he's revealed himself because our brains can create all kinds of pictures of God that are not biblical and that's what happened to Israel they were like oh God won't God won't judge us we're his people mm -hmm. and you see the lack of knowledge suddenly they think it's a good idea that they start worshiping idols mm -hmm. God's like what are you doing you know better but they don't know better right and so it's not the knowledge of all other things, although those things could be helpful. It's the knowledge of God. Uh, we see uh, in God as he's revealed himself. For example, if we jump to the New Testament, John 17, 3, a very famous high priestly prayer. Some of you will probably be able to finish this verse. And this is eternal life, that they may know you the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So, same deal applies to us. We will be destroyed for lack of knowledge, right? The lack of knowledge of who God is, who we are as sinners, and how we could be made right through Jesus Christ. We've got to know those things. Those are facts, right? And so, Christians have caught a bad rap, and some of it's justifiably so, for a lack of knowledge, a lack of knowing God as he's revealed himself. And a lot of times in Christian circles, there's kind of a spirit, a spirit of, not like spirit of, but like an idea of anti-intellectualism, 
Like, I don't want to get, you a know. culture kind of, of anti-intellectualism, yeah. yeah. It's like, well, Christianity is all about feelings. Mm. It's like, well, no. Mm. Christianity, there are things we need to know, right, in yeah. the Bible. And so we need to be people that know the Bible and know God accurately. I, I, I think um, many people, many Christians today, just get hung up in that comfort zone. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Or chasing feelings, right? Feelings are fine, but they come and go. You've got to have feelings that's based in knowledge, right? We can't love a God we don't know. Yeah, people love the sermon as long as they don't get challenged. Yeah. Uh, if your congregation is always comfortable, I guess you're not preaching the word, right? Yeah. A little preacher quote, right? Uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Mm-hmm. That's our job. Comfort those who need comforting because they're afflicted, but afflict the comfortable. You know, poke them. Right? So, yeah, we do need knowledge, and we need knowledge biblically of who God is. The gospel's facts, right? When you apply to be a member of Highlands Bible Church, we ask you what the gospel is, and you can get that wrong, right? There is the gospel that's described in the Bible, right? You don't get to pick your own gospel. If I'm just a good enough person, then God will be... No, that's not the biblical gospel. Yeah, or incomplete. Yeah, yep. So, yeah, same thing applies. People are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You know, We can't be rejecting knowledge, but we've got to understand what the knowledge really is. Right? What about the effects of unrepentant sin that go along with knowledge? Does sin have a uh, wholesome and growing effect on us? Or <laughs> is... Kind of like black mold. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's grow, just not in a good way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, chapter 4, verse 10, They shall eat but not be satisfied. Right. This is speaking to them worshiping other gods. They're not going to be truly satisfied. They're going to play the whore but not multiply. A rather graphic image of they're going to have lots of illicit sex but they're not going to procreate and have a big family that's going to grow up to love God and be good citizens. Uh, They're they're going to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, symbols of sin, right? Watch this, which take away the understanding. Mm -hmm. So we just told without knowledge you're going to perish. And the Bible just said, if you want to keep getting dumber and dumber, keep sinning more and more. Mm -hmm. Because sin literally makes you stupid. And sin literally forms calluses over us, right? Sometimes we wonder, how can people do that? Or how can this happen or whatever? Because it's layer after layer of callus that goes on their hearts. And only God can break through those calluses. And we pray that he does, right? But sometimes people can harden their hearts against God. And they'll harden their hearts against God until the day that they face him. Oh, yeah. And that's a terrifying thing to do, right? Is sin satisfying? Temporarily. Yeah, in some ways, right? Yeah. They'll eat, right, but they're not going to be satisfied. They'll play the horror, but they're not going to multiply. And right? in the end, it leads to death. In the end, it leads to death, right? There's another vivid example in chapter 12 about sin. Uh, Ephraim feeds on the wind, chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the wind all day long, right? They multiply falsehood. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried. Right? They feed on the wind. So they're literally eating air. Airs, last time I checked, has zero nutritional value. It can't sustain you. It's not nutritious. Right? So idolatry is literally like eating air. It doesn't satisfy. Yeah, my translation says chases the wind. Yeah. Yeah. Chasing the wind. What does that get you? Yeah. 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 It's not so much here in Hosea, but in other prophets, he talks about, hey, uh, Israel, knock it off because your little sister Judah is going to follow you. Right? Don't corrupt them because Israel was far worse in their sin and idolatry. And Judah was the one who saw that. Right? And yet... I mean, they did. They did commit adultery by God's grace. They were spared and they were sustained. And thank God for that because we have Jesus through that. Right? But they still suffered exile at the hands of Babylon. 
But sin corrupts. Israel led Judah into sin. Right? God spared them, but Israel was the one who led Judah into sin. Bad company corrupts good morals, right? The quote from Paul of, of, a, of a first century uh, poet there. And so we've got to remember that too. Sin just doesn't stop with us. It's not only not satisfying, but it corrupts other people around us. What about the consequences of sin? Why does God allow us to experience the consequences of sin? That's how you learn. What's that? That's how you learn. That's how you learn, yeah. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes we learn these lessons that we can't learn anytime else, right? Um, chapter 6, verse 1, we see this uh, invitation, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us that he might heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up, right? It's the Lord that's sovereign over. He allowed this to happen, right? And he's also the one that's going to comfort them and heal them in the midst of it, right? He doesn't stand far off and say, you did it, forget it, you're out of here, right, to Judah. He's going to be the one that is going to rescue them, that is going to heal them. And so like us in our sin, sometimes God leaves us in our sin, right? Psalm 119 says, it's good for me that I was afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. And as Carol said, we learn through feeling the effects of our dumb decisions in sin. Well, at least that's the idea we that we learn because the dumb effects of our, of our decisions, right? We should. Yeah. I like 6.6, 6, where I desire loyalty and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Yeah. Yep. He says, truly know me yep. and let that knowledge bear fruit in your life in steadfast love. Instead of just checking the box and bringing your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. Jump over to chapter 8, verse 7. We see some more effects of the sin. We talked about it. For they sow the wind, but they shall reap the whirlwind. Um, 10, 13, if you jump over there. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lives, be, lies because you've trusted in your own way in the multitude of your warriors. What is that telling us? What's the idea of sowing and reaping? Do you have any farmers? What you plant is what you're going to reap. What you plant is yeah. what you're going to reap, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Like that, right? One of our great modern uh, theologians said, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Yep. Right? Something like yep. that. I know yep. that one. <laughs> but that's a biblical concept. What man keep burning coals onto his lap and not get burned? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You keep messing around with sin, you're going to reap the consequences right. of messing around in sin. Does anyone else talk about that in the New Testament, perhaps? The Apostle Paul, maybe in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. You want to keep sinning, sin's going to be progressive, and it's going to take more and more, it's going to corrupt more and more. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Right. So what seeds ought we be planting? Not sinful seeds, right? Seeds of righteousness, right? So we continue to grow. And we think of that. I mean, there's, there's plenty of analogies, right, of, of Christianity and maturity and trees and having roots that go down so that whenever, whatever the weather is outside, right, you, yeah. or if there's a drought, if there's whatever, there's analogies in Jeremiah 17, I think there are. Otherwise, the tree planted by streams of water, right, the roots yeah. that go down deep. Yeah. That's what you're reaping. That's what you're, because you, you've sowed those roots, those roots that go down deep. That's what we want. We want mature Christians with deep roots. Uh, God in Genesis, is that something? He created a garden, and then he uses all these analogies. Yeah. You know, about, it had to do with gardening. And 
Yep. So. Yep. Reap. Good yep. soil. Bad soil. Yep. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. If we go back to Hosea 10 in verse 12, this is what we're going after, right? Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. What do you got for fallow ground, Ken? back there oh sorry unplowed unplowed okay yeah break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the lord that he might come and rain righteousness upon you right that's what we're going for plant righteousness and you'll reap steadfast love not just love as an emotion but steadfast love break up your unplowed ground it's time to seek the lord so we reap what we sow a couple more um the effects of sin. Jump back to chapter 7, verse 14. Interesting little verse. He says, They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon me from their beds. Godly life already got the reference. 714 says, They don't cry to me from their heart, but they wail to me from their beds. What is that going after? The consequences of sin. Does that imply that they're so lazy that, oh, save me, save me, but I'm not going to change? Okay. Yeah, I think you're on the right track there. May not be sincere. Yeah. Okay. Woe is me. Yeah. Right? There still is, in both of those things, both of those stanzas there, right? Sentences. They cry, so you have crying and wailing, right? right? They cry, they don't cry to me from their heart, right? But they just wail when they don't have what they think they need. They yep. don't have their food, they don't have their clothing. Yep. And all of a sudden, woe is me. But you know, God's like, oh, but, you know, I've been here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. Work. You know, yeah. There's there's this tantrum. Exactly, they're a two year old kind of tantrum, right? But God says they're insincere. They're not, there's a difference between crying out to the Lord to help me and save me and the difference is, on the other side, just being miserable because you're in sin. Yeah. yeah. Right? You, you dug your own grave here, right? Yeah. You made your bed. You planted the seeds and you're all upset mm-hmm. because you're having all these bad consequences of sin. But you don't cry to me from the heart. So there's a difference between... Uh, being stuck in sin and being miserable about it and actually crying out to the Lord to help me. Right? There's a difference between being uh, sad about your consequences versus being truly repentful of where you are. Right? Right. We're after repentance. We're not just after being miserable. Right? And so sometimes we see people that are just flat out miserable because they're in sin. Well, that's kind of the way it goes, right? You're not supposed to be happy when you're in rebellion against God. It kind of works that way. What's the solution? Actually confess and repent and grow and change by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's a big difference between crying out in true grief for sin or just crying because of your sinful consequences. We're after the former, right? And then, of course, because we have to land on the gospel. <laughs> Jump over to chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. When I was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Anyone? Bueller? Just that last part. Out of Egypt, I called my son. You can kind of see in one hand, like, you know, we... Prophecies have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, right? Near when we're talking about Israel and Egypt, right? Come on back. I'm going to rescue you from slavery in Egypt. But Jesus. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Where did Mary and Joseph go? Right. Yeah. Egypt. Egypt. Mm-hmm. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15 says, And remained there. They remained there in Egypt until the death of Herod. Remember, they were running from Herod because he was killing all the babies, right? So they, they ran to Egypt to be safe. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So it's like this near fulfillment, of course, for Israel, but then when the birth of Jesus happens, he calls up this obscure verse from Hosea, 
and says, look at this parallel here of the gospel of what that is. Hey, what was the time difference to that? If that was 700 BC, 330 years, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so there's little hints of the gospel all throughout that. And I just wanted to read chapter 14 to close. It's nine verses, but it is just so beautiful. Again, this is the end of the cycle of accusation, judgment, and now this is the mercy part. Mm -hmm. Thought it'd be a nice way to end, considering we've covered some rough ground together tonight, right? Chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, these are the words you take, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bowls and vows of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. Right? So they're worshiping idols. We're not going to worship idols anymore. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root in the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It's like Ephraim, like I am not compatible with idols. It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Beautiful picture of redemption to end Hosea. I mean, look at some of those words. I mean, uses blossom, taking root, beauty, fragrance, right? They will flourish. Their fame, all of this blessing that would happen if they would repent. Right? And he's ready to do that. And the challenge for us in verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever just is discerning, let him know them. All right? Any other thoughts, encouragements, resonations, disparaging remarks? In 11 verse 1, I feel like uh, that, that, uh, that's talking about Moses. When Israel was a child that left him and out of Egypt, I called my son. Oh, sure. Yeah. In, in, in yeah. near fulfillment, absolutely. Right. Yeah. It definitely right. refers to calling them out of slavery in, in, in Egypt. Yep. But again, like many prophecies, right, you have that near context fulfillment. All of Israel knew what he meant, right? But also they probably were thinking, yeah, but what, like, what else does he mean, right? There's echoes of the Messiah there. And then when Jesus shows up and Matthew quotes that exact verse, it became crystal clear. Yeah, the far fulfillment, dual fulfillment of that, that verse. But yeah, you're right. Any other thoughts? So yeah, so it kind of started out depressing, <laughs> but we see God's redemption in it. Is anybody around when we preached through Hosea? That was some rough sailing there for Sundays, man. Yeah, Ryan and I, we both, uh, Green Pond preached through Hosea at the same time we preached through Hosea, so that's a, that's a crowd pleaser. That'll draw them in there. Yep. It's all God's word, and I hope we're able to put together some of these pieces tonight to point to you know, the hope that's in there as well. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the book of Hosea and preserving it for us, including it in the canon. Uh, Lord, it, is, uh, it contains language to us that I'm sure you can understand is shocking to us. Um, but Lord, let us understand that that is the picture of sin. To you, that you who have, who has created us for your glory and to serve you, 
has rejected you and turned aside and been unfaithful to you. Lord, that you understand exactly what unfaithfulness feels like. You understand what rejection feels like. And yet you are the one who being rejected is the one who reaches out and the one who reconciles us back to yourself at great personal cost to yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, you're the one, uh, like Hosea, who went and bought us out of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so may we appreciate that, Lord. May we be like, like Hosea who says to Gomer now, be faithful to me. Uh, Lord, we pray that we are faithful to you because of what you have done for us. And we pray that we bear much fruit for your glory. Thank you uh, for your goodness to us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.